This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author and researcher David Levy joins CIIS professor Sergio Rodriguez-Castillo to explore how we might move between the fast world of tech and the slow world of contemplation. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience in San Francisco on January 19, 2017. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thank you. So, David, welcome. Welcome to CIIS. Really happy to have you here. Thank you, Sergio. I'm very happy to be here to see all these wonderful people here with us. So, um... A lot of people know you. I feel like I've known you for a long time. I've been reading, I've, I've been reading the book. Mm-hmm. And I've been listening to, to interviews and things that you've done, and I know you have a lot to say about both living in the fast world and the, and the slow world. But I would like for us to start with you telling us a little bit about your journey, mm. your life journey, because I think it's fantastic what, what you've done and the way you've been mm. struggling and perhaps being... Uh, successful in balancing these two worlds? Uh, Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, If you look at my credentials, my CV and all of that, you'll see that I have a lot of strong background in technology. Um, Goes all the way back to high school, science high school, Stuyvesant in New York, and learning to program when I was 15, which was a really big deal in the 60s, although it's not a big deal. It's a little (laughs) bit late now, but, uh, you know, uh, and I could tell you stories about that, but then going to college and really doing kind of cutting-edge work in college, even um, programming and other things, and then moving on to Stanford. So I've spent many years, uh, decades, I spent close to 30 years in the Bay Area, first getting a PhD in computer science at Stanford, Um, and then while I was there working at Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, the the famed uh, Silicon Valley think tank. Uh, where, so I was able to work there in the 70s when essentially the personal computer was being invented um, and then was invited back um, and spent almost uh, 20 years altogether there um, <clears throat> before um, moving 15 years ago up to Seattle to teach in the information school at the University of Washington. So plenty of technology credentials and and I'm you know when I was 15 and even when I was 20 it was amazing what you that you could program and you could do these amazing things with computers never could have imagined the world then um, as it is today but but that so that's my fast world high-tech side Mm -hmm. um, which I'm really glad that I've had but some point in my actually in my early 20s when I moved to Palo Alto as a graduate student I started becoming aware that of this desire to get quieter. And I didn't know what that was about because I didn't have any basis for understanding what it was. I had images of maybe going off into the woods or I didn't know what it, what it could be. Um, and I didn't, and actually I was taken to uh, a friend who was a graduate student, took me to 
uh, a couple of zendos in the Bay Area, which were, this was just, by the way, though, for those of you who know what's happened, what happened in Zen in the, in here, was it was just a few years after Suzuki Roshi had died, and the, and the Zen community was, it had its satellites, and, um, and I was taken to a couple of Zen centers um, where I was told how to sit with my legs crossed and try to follow my breathing, um, and I hated it. <laughs> and I thought, why would anybody want to do this? So that was like 22 or 23 years old. Um, so that didn't work. But still, so here was the desire to get quieter and then try, given an opportunity to do it, and it, it just didn't work for me. Um, it was years later, it was in my 30s when I started, I, I, I again approached meditation. And this time it really started to take um, now, what, what, it, what also happened during that period was that I, after I finished my, my PhD at Stanford, I moved to London to study calligraphy and bookbinding. And I think that was, whereas basic, you know, follow your breath meditation wasn't working for me at that stage, um, there was, I, I had a love of books, I had a love of writing, and so there was something about that craft of calligraphy and bringing the mind and body together that really spoke to me. And so calligraphy, in a sense, really was my first contemplative, my first slow world practice, even though I wouldn't have said it that way at the time. Um, and so from the, those early days with calligraphy and then the um, uh, um, finally beginning to get into a more, uh, a more traditional mindfulness practice, um, that slow world side has, has, has grown and grown. And, and, but then, um, at some point, I'd say about 20 years ago, uh, I was still a researcher at Xerox Park. 20 years ago, for those of you who know about that time or remember it, I mean, the, the internet was becoming a real thing. More and more people were getting email. People had the early cell phones, and they had call waiting, and they had voicemail, and they had all that stuff. And, we're, and I was just starting to notice, wait a minute, things are getting faster. And, things, and people were even then starting to talk about feeling overloaded by this. Oh, my God, I, had, I have 50 email messages in my inbox. You know, can you imagine that? How could How that be? Gonna, <laughs> how could that be? How am I going to deal with that? And so I, that, uh, that's the point at which I started to reflect. Well, well, wait a minute. Something's going on here in the fast world. There's something. It has to do with attention. It has to do with our capacity and our, and our intention of what, what kind of life we want to live. And here I'm practicing, starting uh, practicing these slow world practices. Maybe they could be in dialogue with each other. And the first piece that I ever wrote on this subject was came out in 1995. So what, 21, 22 years ago? And it was called "I'm Not Here Right Now to Take Your Call." Get that? I'm not here right now to take your call. Te Subtitle: Technology and the Politics of Absence. Mm -hmm. Where I started to wonder and 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 even worry if the technologies that were being sold as tools to connect us were also disconnecting us. And so that that's the dialogue and the and that's the question that I've been really uh, wrestling with um, for all these years, which is how do we sort out the ways in which these technologies are really serving us well? Because of course, in many ways, they are. They're very powerful. They're very amazing tools. But, but how do we also balance that against the ways that they seem to be disconnecting us uh, from the world and from ourselves? Thank you. Thank you. And it, it, seems, it seems from that that, that, that that tension or that desire to find a middle path almost, like mm -hmm. between, and, and the book talks a lot about it, and we, we get into that into a moment, but this path between 
only technology and no no technologies like you're trying to find that that middle path mm-hmm. that that is going to find to find that balance i'm really puzzled about the calligraphy i mean you you there you are you started the phd in computer science and you're doing this work more specifically what what gets is there like an event that gets you to say you know what i'm going to london to the it's, it's, yeah. in some ways feels like a like a shaving of the head and, and say i'm right. going to the to the right. other world or Right. Well, to back up, and I don't say this um, in the book, but calligraphy entered my consciousness in my world because of an amazing fourth grade teacher I had, PS61 in Lower Manhattan. (laughs) Mr. Unterberger gave us all calligraphy pens. And um, he was an amazing teacher. I mean, probably every one of you has had one, at least one absolutely amazing teacher who changed your life. Well, Mr. Unterberger was my was my teacher, and he loved books. He loved to sit on the edge of his desk, and we would tell stories, and we were all so excited about the books we were reading, and he talked about how books were made, and he gave us calligraphy pens. And so I got interested in that when I would have been about 10 years old. And then there I was in graduate school, um, really finding graduate school difficult in a variety of ways, um, which we could go into. I mean. Not that any of you are finding graduate school difficult. I don't imagine that would be the case. But um, and saying, oh, I, I need some, I need something else in my life than this really heady computer sciencey intellectual stuff. And then I remembered, I remembered calligraphy. It's almost like I woke up one morning and I said, oh, I could study calligraphy. And then I discovered that the Bay Area and San Francisco, in particular, was a great place to do to to, to do calligraphy. Um, but then. What is it that precipitated then going to, you know, going to study in London? Well, I wasn't happy. I hadn't fa- found, a, a, if you like, a deeper fulfill- fulfillment in computer science. It just didn't speak deeply enough to me. I, I loved programming. I loved thing, uh, aspects of it. But at least at the time, artificial intelligence, which was really my area, seemed to be too narrow, it seemed to have too narrow a conception of what it is to be human. Mm-hmm. And I was, I mean, even in my early, I mean, I, look, I went to a liberal arts college, you know, I mean, I really went, I, I didn't go to MIT where, you know, a number of my, my high school um, friends went because I wanted a broader education. And so even as I was studying AI, I was reading existential philosophy and literature in graduate school. Not a good thing to do, folks, <laughs> unless you're in a school where existential philosophy and literature is actually part of your program because it messes with your head, right? And so, so by the end of my PhD, I thought, this isn't it. And, and, and I didn't know. I'd say it was the first time in my life, though, that I listened to some deeper inner voice that seemed to say, this is what you need to do. But you, you guys know that as well, right? I mean, there's some, when, you, when you discover that there, whatever you make of it, that there is potentially some deeper guidance. And that voice was absolutely right, because going to study calligraphy expanded my world in so many ways um, and really has been the basis for probably everything I've done over the last 30 years. There's something about that little voice, right, that is trying to ask us to find meaning beyond beyond something. I, I, I Without going too much into that, my, my own journey is similar. As we were talking a moment ago, I was an, an information technology attorney for, for many years, until one day, I remember clearly, I was I was in a deal between, I think it was IBM and Microsoft, and rep- representing one of the two. I'm trying to figure out who was going to make more money, and how to get one to make more money than the other. And I said, really, this is what you're doing with my life? 
so, so meaningless in some way. And that's what started ignite my own journey into, into becoming a therapist and right to find something that was more meaningful and in a way trying to rescue myself in this process. But the thing I would add, and I love that story, by the way, and I bet many people in the audience have, have stories about how they got here, if, those of you who are students. Um, so in that process, in that process of, of finding that, that balance that took you there to study computer science and then study calligraphy, then you come back, and then there's another surprising move. You go into academia. Right. Mm -hmm. How's that part of the... Right. Well, that part is weird. It, it's because after I finished my PhD, I thought I was done with academia. By the way, and I thought I was done with computers initially as well. So it was a little bit of going to London was kind of a shaving the head experience, but I discovered that whatever that inner guidance was, was not, that calligraphy was not going to be it. I wasn't going to become a, um, a calligrapher. And, and so I thought, I mean, I basically never thought that I would go back into academia. Um, but after many years at Xerox Park, I don't need to go into the details, that path kind of ended. The group that I was part of was being disbanded, and, um, and it was just time to figure something else out. And for years, um, while I was at Park, um, I'd think to myself, you know, like when I was taking a shower, um, <clears throat> boy, when this gig ends, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to be a waiter or something. Because I didn't feel like I was actually qualified for, for anything um, particular, because I was doing, uh, by the way, I wrote another book about, about all that stuff called Scrolling Forward, which just came out in a new edition um, just this last year. But I really um, thought that, uh, that, that there, was no, there was no way that I could take what I was learning and turn it into something meaningful. What I didn't count on was that the internet and the web was changing a lot of stuff, and that the things that I was writing, even as a researcher at Xerox Park, were getting noticed. And that suddenly there was a, a, a beginning to be an interest in, so someone like me, who had one foot in the material world of calligraphy and books and all of that, but also had the, the, um, the techie side, was suddenly a bit in demand, especially as these new schools called information schools were, were, were being invented. I looked like a pretty interesting guy to have around. You so, are. Well, it turned out that way. <laughs> I, I didn't know what that was. And so that's basically, that's, that's been the last 15 years. And who knows what's next, what the next stage might be. But that's where, I, that's where I've been for 15 years. Okay. And at some point there, you decide to bring these two worlds together. And, and you develop this, this course uh, on information and contemplation. Mm -hmm. uh, would you care to say some more sure. about that? Well, that goes back. I mean, I, I had already been for, you know, that's 10 years ago that the course, that, that I began this course. But even, you know, 10, 10 years before that was this question, can the contemplative, can, the, can mindfulness actually give us insights into what balance could look like and how we could steer this crazy ship that we're, that, you know, that we're all trying, trying to figure out how to steer. But basically 10 years ago, um, I created a course at the University of Washington where I thought, what if I offer students the opportunity um, to actually do meditation and other contemplative um, um, practices in the classroom, not something that's at all foreign to people here, but was not, 10 years ago, was not that um, common a thing to do at a big university like the University of Washington. So the idea was I would invite students to actually do sitting and walking meditation and other, other mindfulness practices 
And then we would, but we would use the qualities of mind that we were cultivating to look at our relationship to our devices and apps. Now, 10 years ago, right, we're, social media was really not a phenomenon then, but email was and cell phones were and, and, and all of that. And, but part of what I was also trying to work out 10 years ago was, well, all right, so that's a, that's a general framing for this. We'll sit together and we'll talk and we'll read articles about this, but how are we going to get first-person experience? What are, we, what are we going to do? I mean, shouldn't we be doing some sort of mindfulness stuff rele relevant to the technologies? And so that's what I started to do. And over the last 10 years, I, I constructed a series of detailed exercises that asked the, the students to, for example, over the course of a week, pay attention to what was happening in their mind and body when they were uh, using email or when they were on Facebook or more recently Instagram and all of that. And then to keep a log of that and to use the insights. Oh, look what's happening with my breath. Look at how I sit. Look at how my posture changes the longer that I'm, you know, that I that, that I'm online. Oh, oh wow. I when I look when I see my inbox, I feel anxious. Isn't that interesting, right? So basically to to open up the space of immediate experience. Um, so that people could be seeing and feeling and taking note of what was actually happening in their mind and body while they were, while they were doing different practices. And so that's what, that's what um, I, I work, have worked out over these last 10 years. Um, and those exercises are actually the basis um, for the book, you know, the, the new book um, called Mindful Tech. Yeah, and, and that brings it into the book very organically. So through the, all those experiences, you, you became more and more aware that this was... I don't know if I can say a need. You saw that the, the what probably started just as an experiment. Let's let's start this course and see how many people actually would come to that. And you talk about it in the book. At some point, it became more and more a need. And I think that's that's why we have a full full room here today because we have become more and more aware of that. And, and as a therapist, some of the things that I notice when when people come to me and and being here in San Francisco Bay Area, I get. I get a lot of attorneys and, and a lot a lot of, of techies that just are not happy. And and it's fascinating because they're they they're doing the job that they, they love. Uh, they they're getting very well paid and, and they're not happy. They they're not fulfilled. The existential quest, right? The, the part there's something missing. There's something that is not quite there. I don't have time or whatever it may be, right? So it's a way in which the book is yet another step in that answer that you are that you are pro proposing. Right. Although I want to be clear that I don't think that the root problem that, that we're addressing is the technologies themselves. And you do that very clearly in the um, book, yes. I really think that, um, that, that what we're really looking at are a whole set of societal values and practices into which, within which the, 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 into which the, um, the technologies are, are woven. And, and I also want to say very clearly as I say in the book, that I'm not interested in simple black and white stories, you know, I, you know, either um, unproblematically just simply celebrating everything the technologies do, or on the other hand, just simply putting them down. I think part of what we can we do when we become more mindful of our, our use of, of the technologies, which includes seeing, by the way, ways that we're using them really well and that are really working for us. Mm -hmm. The more that we become mindful, the more that we see that there's so much subtlety 
There's so much subtlety and even contra potentially contradiction in our, in our relationship um, to the devices. Um, and, and that's what I'm really interested in, uh, in our, I, I think that, the, so you're right. I mean, I think over these 10 years, more and more people have been saying, well, there really is a problematic side. And indeed, you know, in for, for the 20 years ago, when I was first speaking and writing about this in Silicon Valley, people didn't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. But I think we're, I think we're very lucky now that we, we recognize that there's, that, that it's a much bigger space here than we've allowed ourselves to see. Um, and it's good, and that we by actually working together to notice what's happening for our, ourselves and our families and our groups and our society, that we can actually do a much better job. Absolutely, and and I and that comes very clear when I'm saying I'm not happy. I didn't I didn't imply it in any way that it's because of my because of the my, my newest right. gadget, right? Actually, right, my right. newest gadget is the only thing that makes me somewhat happy, right? <laughs> Yeah, or yeah. so, or so. No, it comes cl very clear in the book that, and something in, in psychotherapy, it is this term that we call splitting, which is either all good or all bad, right? Mm -hmm. And you are very clear in the book that it's not so much about demonizing technology. Mm -hmm. There's, there's something that we we have to acknowledge that these technologies are useful, and that's why they're so successful. And I'll say I want to talk more about that. But even before that, something that really surprised me about the, the book, well, mm -hmm. many things, but something is that you suggest, well, this is not a new problem. This is a problem that has thousands of years since the, the invention of writing, pretty much, and then it has accelerated as everything else, I think you say, since the uh, Industrial Revolution or, or something like that. That's so been the real intensification over the last mm -hmm. 100 and 150 years, but it's much, much older. Than that, tell yeah. me about that problem, that, that older problem. So it's not... It's not just our gadgets. It's it's an older problem. How, right. how do you see what what would you say is that problem? Well, he, here's how I would understand what the work that our information technologies are doing, and at, this goes back at least five thousand years. Um, and by and so I would include you know the ability to write, the ability to write notes and pass them along and so on. Remember too, here's my calligraphy background. What we've been able to do over the last five thousand years is to um, is to create technologies that extend our power and reach. That's a lot of what writing does, is you can write something and then you can send it off to somebody else and you don't have to be in the room and somebody can actually, in effect, hear, hear you. Of course, being very, very simple and simplistic. So basically, what we've been exploring uh, as, uh, as a species are forms of mediated communication and action, right? I mean, you could imagine a time when human beings really, all, the only way that you could um, speak and make things happen was essentially face-to-face, -face, right, mm -hmm. more or less. So now but, but now we have these, little by little, we've been increasing the extent to which we, we do things in a mediated way. But as soon as you do, me, you, you, you do mediated communication, you suddenly have to manage the mediators themselves. You have to manage the notes. You have to manage the books. And then you start creating the catalogs for the catalogs for the books, and then you have to manage the different catalogs, and right, and so it's 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 an so, on the one hand, you, you're um, it's a very powerful thing that we've figured out how to do, that you can actually make things happen across the world, you know, uh, uh, initiate processes that will will make something happen even though you're not there, um, but then you have to pay the price for tending the devices, tending the documents, tending the materials. And I think what's been happening over the last 150 years 
is this vast intensification of, of mediated communication. And in our own era, just, you know, or in our own lifetimes, we, we've seen that, that the digital has become the most extraordinarily powerful means to do that so that you can send things at the speed of light. And, mm-hmm. and, and we, you know, we take that for granted, right? And we have these little devices we carry around. But then what that means is, the, 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 is that the only way that um, uh, one of these mediated communications actually works if, is if people pay attention to it. You know, I can send a note to you, but if you don't read it or you don't read it seriously, then, then it hasn't served its purpose. So on the one hand, we've been proliferating the, the, these forms of mediation, but the human attention, attentional capacity is limited. It hasn't grown one bit. In fact, some people would argue it's actually shrunk because we're not paying, you know, because our attention muscle has gotten weak. So we're in the middle of this situation where our, one of our most powerful human resources, namely human attention, is finite, limited, and not expandable. We could talk about you know, the crowd and all of that. I mean, yes, I'm, I'm well aware of that, those other arguments, but I, wanna, I don't want to go there right now. Um, <clears throat> but we're, we're, we're proliferating this stuff at a huge rate, and, so we're not, and we don't have the societal understanding or means about how to collect and organize all this stuff. We're the guinea pigs. We're the creators of this, and we're the guinea pigs for it at the same time. What, what I worry about, this is where the, my political side um, comes in, though, is that I think that a lot of what has actually been driving this vast intensification over the last 100 to 150 years is our economic system, which is um, wanting, which, which sees ever more abundant production and efficient production and ever greater amounts of consumption as almost the religion of, uh, of our society. Being so faster, better. More, what I call more faster, better, mm-hmm. exactly. And so there's the challenge, which is that um, the, our reward systems are rewarding us for producing and consuming. And right here in San Francisco is one of the meccas for, for exactly that kind of work being done. Now, I want to be clear. I don't think there's something that we shouldn't be producing and consuming, but... The, but I think with a contemplative or a mindfulness lens, we can ask, what happens, is it, is it balanced when the acceleration seems to cut out of life aspects that, that are no longer seen as valuable because they're not immediately relevant to production and consumption, like taking a long walk, like sleeping more hours, like, like reading a book, or, or just sit, you know, sitting and talking with friends. We're caught in, in between the, the, the instrumental side, which is saying, look, just you know, get on the hamster wheel and go faster and faster. And then parts of us, that des- our, our humanity, that desperately needs these non-instrumental ways of being. And I, I find the book incredibly hopeful, is because the premise of the book is that it is actually, going, going more into the specific of the book, you, you said over and over, that it's through attention, through mindfulness, is actually possible to, to establish a more balanced relationship with our gadgets, with our devices. Yes. I mean, first, let's just start with us as individuals. I mean, a lot of what the book is really primarily about is where's the wiggle room for each one of us, right? I mean, um, I, I say in the book that there are many things that need to, that if they're going to be changed, they have to be changed socially and politically. But, but the book is really about what can I, what can I do differently? And 
And what I've been seeing working with my students and in workshops around the country with adult professionals is that once you actually start noticing, oh, you know, when I look at my inbox, this is what happens. Or when I read certain things after 10 o'clock at night or check certain devices or whatever, that it has certain consequences for me. You, we begin to open up a space of choice. That's really what it's about. Oh, I've, I've, you know, we've, we've sort of gotten into certain habits, largely unconsciously, all of us, inclu including me. But when we start noticing how we feel when we do things, we're actually stepping back in a way that we can say, oh, that's, in, you know, and if you start observing over more than one, one session, you say, oh, isn't that interesting? I tend to do this, and then afterwards I feel this. So, for example, I, you know, I, I can't sleep after after I do such and such. Well, then, that bec then you open up the space of possibility and you can say, well, what a, you know, maybe, I, maybe I could do things differently. Maybe I could try things differently. And so the exercises in the book essentially go through the following steps. Pay attention to what's going on in your mind and body. Keep a log uh, of what you're noticing. Um, after you've done that for a while, in my classes, people typically do that for a week, um, actually write about it. I mean, you could blog about it, you could write about it, or you could have a conversation with a friend. Maybe a friend is doing the same exercises, and then you come back together. And, and as part of that reflection, consciously write out a set of personal guidelines. Um, I think that's very important. Um, and that's another p thing that I want to be really clear about, about the, the approach that I'm proposing, which is I don't think one size fits all. I, you know, what, sometimes when I get interviewed, people want to say, so what are the three rules for, you know, for social media? You're not going like to give that. me the three rules? I, I, I'm only if you pay me even more than you're paying me tonight, uh, which, uh, which wouldn't be hard. But no, no. Uh, um, no, I, I am actually against, um, I'm I know. religiously against the idea that everybody should follow the same, the same set of rules. Because we're all different in our cognitive and emotional makeup. We're different um, in our life experience and, and, and so on. And so I think, and part of what I love when, when in my classroom students come together, we, we, we share all of their reflections and we, we talk about them together, um, is I love that the students get to see how different we are mm -hmm. fr from one another. But also they get to see somebody do, deciding to do something different with their phone that they never would have thought of to try. And they go, mm, and they say, maybe yeah, maybe, that, right? maybe, maybe I can do that yes. as well. Yes. Yeah. So really, what this is about, uh, the, the, the one-sentence um, summary of what this is about is, let's open up a space of inquiry. Let's get curious and interested. And also, let's put aside some of the bigger judgments, you know, like, well, if you do that, you're bad and wrong, or if you do that, you're good. Let's actually be curious enough to observe what's happening and perhaps be able to join in with others who are, who are actually in, 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 the, in a st similar state of questioning. And... and and make some discoveries. Yes, yes. And that's what, that's, that's what I meant by empowering, because mm -hmm. on the one hand, you're emphasizing choice, saying mm -hmm. it is possible to choose how to relate to the devices, to the technology. You actually talk about your, our di digital craft. It's not just, mm -hmm. it's not a set of, of steps. It's, it's a craft, how to relate to our, to our I'm using the word gadgets, but it's, it's in general to, to include all of them. And, and at the same time, you, you're saying... And you have to find your own way. 
I mean, there are so many, you just have to Google, right? The, the 10 rules for dealing with email, 10 rules for doing WhatsApp or whatever or it, it is, seven, or, or, or seven, is it, or, is or is it 12, 12 or is it three? I think yeah. 15 is the most, because we don't have more attention. Yeah. 15 is already yeah. like I'm getting uh, to overload, right? But I, I really love that aspect of it, that you are saying, you do the inquiry, you you find out how it is for you and you and you come up with your own solutions. Mm-hmm. So and that's very respectful and, and very empowering in, in the work the work that you do. Let me move to something else because you said let's let's move away from those of these judgments about good or bad. Mm-hmm. Something that I found incredibly refreshing about the book is your stance towards multitasking. Mm-hmm. I have to confess that in many ways I, I am one of those that judge multitask. I mean, you've done. I've I've read the research. How even you put it in the book, uh, strictly. How do you say it? In in, in strict engineering terms, uh, multitasking is inefficient mm-hmm. uh, because your your uh, your energy is being pulverized. Right? You go there. You go. There, you go this. Although although it sounds counterintuitive, because no, I'm doing five things at the same time. Right? So I, I had my judgments about it. But then you say, no, I mean, multitasking is not, is not always a bad thing. It's actually we're doing. When you're driving, you're multitasking, right? You're having a conversation with someone, you are multitasking. So there are ways in which multitasking is not always, and that's, that's it's, it's, it's the thing that I keep always, and, and Suzuki Roshi used to say, like, when a, a definition of, of Zen Buddhism was, not, it's not always so. So I, I hear you saying that over and over, like, Multitasking is not always a bad thing, right? Mm-hmm. And and to discern that, right? And and but I just I just start by saying that you know there really are two camps on this. Mm-hmm. There are, and 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 I know some of the literature on on both sides. And you have the on the one hand you have people saying like like you sort of are confessing to, <laughs> you know this is it's a terrible thing to do and you shouldn't do it and you're you know you're wrong if you do it. There are other people who argue, in, especially in the educational world, um, that it is an essential 21st century skill that, that people need to know how to, how, to, how to do it. Now, first, what do we even mean by multitasking? And there is, by the way, no general agreement about what this term means, so that even makes it even harder to talk about it, because what are we talking about? What I'm talking about primarily is the ability we have as humans, the necessary ability we have to shift from one object of focus to another. And when we take that online, the case that people generally get most incensed about is rapidly switching between you know, devices and windows and apps and all of that, right? But if you think about it as fundamentally an attentional skill, it's, it's a, I'm, uh, I'm, Sergio, I'm listening to you, um, and then maybe, I hear something outside, and I and I switch my attention to that. But then I bring my attention back to you. Um, it's just something that we humans do and need to do. And one of the things that people have pointed out, who are critics critical of the people who are critical of multitasking, is that women traditionally have have you know in terms of you know taking care of kids and making meals and all of that traditionally have have been that's been a, a natural uh, form of uh, of practice for them. So if we take it, we just take it as an attentional skill. Then we suddenly, we t- we take we remove it from some of these 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 strong judgments. We we need the ability to shift our attention, and we can learn to do it better. Um, and so, but then we still want to ask the question: When is it a good thing to be doing it, and when isn't it? And that's what I want people to investigate as well. And I do that. We one of the two of the exercises that I do with my students, and two of them in the book actually involve asking people 
to do some serious, you know, get down and do some serious multitasking on their devices. And what I actually have them do is to download software onto their laptop. That happens, the software I happen to have them use is called Camtasia by TechSmith, which I think is, 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 is actually pretty good at this. And so you can actually, what you can do is you can set up a situation where you're in a cafe or a home or wherever, where you suddenly know that you're going to be texting and you're going to be on, on, on your devices and you're recording all of that, including the sound. And then what you do is once you've recorded it, you have, you have the ability to actually play that video and start noticing where are, were the choice points? Because that's the crucial thing about multitasking is, is that choice points arise when you suddenly become aware of something either externally happening that could be calling to your attention, like your phone ringing, or a beep saying you've just gotten a text, or internally, where suddenly you feel anxious. And by the way, that, you know, it's the inter internal triggers that I think I, I've seen with people that are actually very powerful and largely unconscious. I'm reading something and I feel, I feel um, anxious, or I'm reading something and I feel bored, and boom, you go somewhere else. So what I'm suggesting to people is that if you bring mindfulness to those choice points, which is not necessarily always easy, but it's, a, but it's an ongoing learning practice, you can say, ah, I'm feeling anxious at this moment because of what I'm reading here. I can now make, I could make a mindful choice. I could decide, I'm really anxious, I gotta get out of this, reading this thing, and I'm gonna go to, you know, to the, for me it's the New York Times, but for you guys it's who knows what else. Um, or I could say, no, I'm feeling anxious, but really I, I, I should finish it, at th this thing at this moment. So it's, that's what I'm interested in, is those moments in multitasking when, when, when you've brought mindfulness to it and you make the choice that seems to be the right choice for you at the moment, rather than having a rule that says, well, whenever I feel anxious, I necessarily do X or Y. I have to say that I, I downloaded Camtasia and it was a horrible experience to watch me, watch myself say, okay, I'm gonna do this. And then for the next 15 minutes, I'm doing something else, very productive, but I'm not doing what I thought, what I wanted to do. And, and yeah, it was a horror story. Well, actually, let me say <laughs> something about that, Sergio, because one of the things I work with my students about is they tend to be there, they tend to be very self-critical. I mean, we all are, right? So, so it's like, let's, I want to say to you, it's okay. Thank you. It's really okay. <laughs> and, and just bring, bring your curiosity to it mm -hmm. you know, more yeah. than, than you know, oh, I can't believe I did this. You know? I, had a, I had a student a few years ago doing this exercise, uh, a millennial student, who noticed an, on, the, on the video that in the middle of doing something else, that he had had this interaction with, I think, a cousin of his on Facebook. But he had no memory of actually having done it. And, and, he, had, and he had just you know, gotten off of, he'd done the, the video, he'd watched it. So it, less than half an hour earlier, he, and he had no memory that he had done that. Well, okay. Well, isn't that an interesting thing to discover? Because how much of the time are we maybe doing things that we're unconscious about? And by the way, when I say that, I'm not necessarily saying that being unconscious at that moment was a bad thing. That's, again, for you to decide whether those moments of unconsciousness are a problem. You talk about, what, what I, when I first read it, it was this oxymoron almost to me, focus multi, multitasking. I said, well, that, 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 that's an oxymoron, right? But when, I, when you read the chapter, I, I get it. So yeah. would you care to say a little bit more about it? Sure. And I want to actually, I want to give credit to uh, a teacher here Dar uh, who is no longer alive, um, Darlene Cohen, who wrote a little book called The One Who Is Not Busy. 
Um, and Darlene was a Zen teacher. She was part of the, uh, the San Francisco Zen, Zen lineage. And um, it was discovering her little book called The One Who Is Not Busy that got me um, interested specifically in the possibility that we could look at multitasking. And I actually, um, <clears throat> I approached uh, uh, Darlene. Uh, she lived in Sonoma. Um, and we ended up doing an empirical experiment where we gave um, human resource managers in Seattle and San Francisco um, a complex multitasking test and gave them eight weeks of mindfulness training or, a, or another form of training, a kind of control group, and then had them do the multitasking test again and discovered that, indeed, not surprisingly, that they were, there were ver various measures on which they were actually much better. But it was, it was Darlene who specifically helped me to see that the key idea in multitasking is, is what I was just talking about, which is at any one moment we're focusing on something, that's our object of attention, and then other choices potentially arise. And, we, and if we're mindful, we can, we can look at those and, we can, and, make, and, and make decisions. Um, so anyway, a big thank you to, to Darlene, who is, who is no longer with us. Thank you to her. The last part of the book. Yeah. So you have, you have the, the exercises, which I think are, are incredible, very, help, very useful and insightful. It'd be very useful for me. But then towards the last, all through the book, but towards the last part of the book, you, you start talking about, we need to broaden this conversation. This is not just about this five exercise and how does it work for me. And there, there's also about the, the what's, what's going on culturally, what's going on in the higher level. And I want to read... Uh, a little, uh, um, a couple of, of short parts of the book that I think are, are, are fascinating. And so you say, we live in a, in a more faster, better culture where more is not enough. Clearly, there's a powerful cultural, cultural imperative to do more, to produce more, and to do so even more efficiently. And to the extent that we have internalized these imperatives, it can be hard to take a break, to step away from the machine especially when we feel the subtle pressure of our ever-present to-do list. What's more, this, this was a killer for me, our digital devices aren't only our work machines, but also the places where we shop, entertain ourselves, and communicate with our loved ones. Taking a break from work can therefore mean switching to other app or website to the same device, rather than going for a walk, walk or reading a book. What would it look like if the technology industry aimed to promote balance, aimed to promote balance rather than seemingly endless consumption? So there you, you are, you're calling to a different relationship, not only personal relationship, but actually from the, the whole technology industry. Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> I, think, I think you got it. Um, that's right. Um, and I'm not alone in calling for that. I mean, some of you probably know the work of Tristan Harris, who... Um, who is a, actually a designer calling for a ethics, a, an ethics of design that's not just about grabbing, grabbing um, people's attention and holding it. Um, the question is, you know, is ultimately how to do this because our, the whole economic model is, you know, is, um, is geared toward this sort of more faster, better um, system of, of production and consumption. So, I mean, I mean let me, let me I, I don't know how to do that. Right, but what I what I think 
And, and this goes back to what you were starting with, Sergio, which is I think we need a broader and deeper conversation than, than we're having. And maybe we're actually beginning to see it to some extent. Um, I, I, you know, we've heard enough about it. It's so easy to either simply celebrate or simply demonize mm-hmm. what's going on. And to, do, to take either one of those positions is to miss, miss all of the richness of what's actually going on. I mean, I, look, having been doing this for so long, I remember, um, I remember, you know, 20 years ago, I started talking about the problems with email, for example, right, and overload and so on. And inevitably, somebody in the room would say, but I know somebody who's a shut-in or something like that, and email is that person's lifeline, right? Yes. <laughs> we can't say email is the problem or is, you know, it's, 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 too, you know, it, it, it's, it's only bad or that, or that it's only good. What I hope for, this, this is as far as I've gotten with these th- this thinking, and I offer it to, to, you know, to, to all of us today. What I've noticed with my students is that the more they actually sit with what they're experiencing with their devices, the more that they themselves see in themselves subtle gradations of, of attitudes and feelings. They're no longer so, you know, maybe they came in with this is great or this is terrible. But it's, I, I love it when, when somebody can say, in effect, you know, I love my phone and I hate my phone, right? Because there, that says in ways you can see the phone is fabulous, in other ways it isn't. And then now you can begin to have a conversation. So my hope is that if we could begin to talk from a deeper level of awareness of the complexity of our relationship to the devices, that we would stop getting stalled in those, well, you're a Luddite because you say that, or, you know, or, 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 or taking the other position. I don't know how to, do, I don't know how to have that, that, that conversation. And, I, and it is overshadowed by the... Uh, by the power of the of the economic system, right? Um, I learned something very, you know. I teach about, uh, you know, in the information school. I, I I don't just teach this course. I teach other things. And one of the things I've come to understand is that um, back around the year two thousand was when um, the whole tech industry really decided that customer data. Was the uh, was the was the way was going to be the you know the business model right, and therefore grabbing people and grabbing their data. Um, you know the the dot com bust happened. Uh, the previous model was really around more around selling software and, and things like that. Interestingly, right around that time was nine eleven, and nine eleven was the time when we all got scared and the government got really scared about terrorism and all of that. And so for the past fifteen years, both government and industry have been essentially collecting all this data on us, right? And I mean, that's partly a tangent, is it? But, but what I'm trying to say is that we're caught up in, a, in some very big, almost global assumptions about the way we have to work with information and our devices. And somehow or other, I think the challenge is to open up the deeper space of choice and bring in more of the squishy part of ourselves, which we get to, from our, from our contemplative lives, you know, and to, to be able to admit that I can't just do this and, and be a full human being. And maybe it's, it's this generation and, and the generation that's coming up. Maybe it's going to be a generational change. I mean, I get I, that, 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 that that's going to happen, but I don't really know how it's going to happen other than we have to get beyond the kinds of simplistic back and forth stories that we're telling. Mm-hmm.
Mm-hmm. And I'm um, I'm hearing you say you, you you've been you've been thinking about this for a lot longer than many of us, although we we all face it, are facing it. But I'm hearing you say that you're that we're ready that perhaps we're ready to begin having those conversations, the more subtle conversations be beyond good or bad, as, as Rumi used to say. There's a field be, between good and evil, right? Yes. Uh, and so to have those conversations. Yes. And, and I, I'm also, uh, things like we, we will have to wrap up this part of the interaction with this, and I'm also, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm hearing you being hopeful, not only seeing these changes, but hopeful that, that we... We can we can develop this new relationship, and, and it can be done both at a personal level and as community societal level. I I am hopeful. In fact, one of the reasons I'm hopeful is this vast intensification that's been happening for a hundred plus years has made it so evident. I mean, you could, people. That's a whole other story that I won't try to tell now. But but a hundred years ago, when the engineering mentality was was really establishing more, faster, better. Um, people couldn't see that that, it, that that life would go as fast as it, as it does now or what the consequences would be. So the good news is we've gotten to the point where we can actually see some of these consequences and we are in a position to make changes. So I, thank you. I mean, that's right. I, I am hopeful. Well, no, thank you. Then thank you for writing such a useful book, such a hopeful book. Thank you, Sergio. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.